0: Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. We are powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. This podcast is our eddy in the rushing waters of local journalism. We are glad that you're taking some of your time to listen to us chat with the people who shape our local community. I am Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source Weekly, and my co-host for this podcast is Nicole Vulcan, our editor. Thank you again for joining us today. We are speaking with Brian Yeager. Brian is a beer author, including Oregon Breweries, Beer Fest producer, and beer tasting instructor at COCC. He is also also a certified Cicerone. He is a regular contributor to the Source Weekly's food and drink sections, filing stories about everything from rice lagers to the finer points of a Boston creme. Because he's working on donut authorship, you'll find he occasionally reviews our local donut scene. Yes, he absolutely floats all summer long with a beer in one hand and a donut in the other. And this week, he's penned a feature story on the oral history of Mirapond Al. And since we here at The Source never pass up a chance to write about both Pond and or the beer, it was an ideal time to bring Brian on the podcast. Brian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, Brian. So tell us, what how did you get into the world of beer besides the obvious, you just like drinking it? <laughs> What's so great about beer?
2: I think when I basically made the conscious decision to switch from being a music writer to a beer writer. This was back in the early aughts. The craft beer scene was not even yet at its peak, and I just was really enamored of what was going on locally and nationally and dove into it. And uh, there were several beer-focused publications at the time, so it was actually almost easier as someone who really wanted to be a working writer I said this is a niche that I could carve out and and here we are yeah
0: especially in Oregon
2: exactly <laughs>
1: yeah so it was a right place right time kind of deal definitely awesome what, what point does uh your
0: passion move you to bend and how did the craft scene beer here affect that choice or was it the donuts <laughs> it, uh, I, <laughs> I know it, it wasn't the yeah, donuts
2: there, there's a reason bend has a reputation as being a Beer town and maybe not a donut town. But uh, I remember my first time visiting Bend was 1996. There were only two breweries in town at that point, three looking out to, uh, you know, the greater Central Oregon area. And here we are, you know, we're over 25 breweries.
1: In Bend, uh, I mean, but what is the total for Central Oregon? Like something like 31?
2: You know, the fact is, and I've really crunched these numbers, we're only at about 27 breweries in central Oregon. Oh, okay. Uh, now, if you want to count uh, different tasting rooms and some breweries that operate more than one location, yes, then we get to over 30. But as far as actual brewing concerns, as they're called, uh, companies, you know, for example, Sun River operates multiple pubs. Sure. They have one brewery. So uh, we're, again, you know, we're we're about 27... Different beer companies in Central well, it, Oregon it's not and like, about 20 or so in Bend proper. Yeah,
0: it's, it's not like I'm, I think that's a small number. No, of course <laughs> not. I mean, we really
2: are absolutely one of the highest breweries per capita in the country and, sure. and the world.
0: Yeah.
1: So again, but what what was that the reason you wanted to move to Bend? Tell us a little bit of, no, of how how you got here. I just
2: love Bend. We you know what's not, almost what's not to love about it here. And my wife and I had nearly pulled the trigger moving here, uh, you know, because when you live in Portland and we would just come down twice a year, like a summer trip, winter trip, skiing, floating, that kind of thing. And we actually didn't move here until. Just three years ago. But it's always been something that I've kept tabs on. Again, when I was working on Oregon Breweries the Guidebook, I started working on that in 2012. And I it didn't come out until 2014. That period was such an absolute huge growth in the brewery population in Bend and around Oregon that every time I'd go do a trip (laughs) i would have to do some more sweeps because it was important to me to make it to everyone interview the owner the brewmaster or something in all those different pockets around the state
1: it kind of sounds like how it feels for us to do these guides that we put out about the food scene or the happy hour scene it's like the second you finish (laughs) it it needs to be updated again
2: yeah and you know oregon breweries is a guide book wasn't even a guide <laughs> website, so yeah, uh, uh even at the time, there were hundred and ninety two entries in that book. I wow. would say since then, you know we're really looking at just a hair under a decade uh about fifty have closed, and about hundred and fifty have opened, wow. yeah, wow so
0: how do you how do you describe Ben's beer scene to people I mean you know, if you look out, I mean, nationwide, this has been such an explosion. And, and Ben does really have a, its own kind of character and niche in that. What, what do, How do you characterize it?
2: It does. I think that it shares something in common with the very few other places that are put in that same discussion of what is the best beer town in America. And you could look at the large cities. Obviously, San Diego is renowned for having about 200 Denver, Chicago, a lot of big cities have a huge brewery population. Mm. But then when you look at cities like Bend, uh, it also usually is mentioned in the same breath as Asheville, North Carolina, mm. Boulder, Colorado, where they have about 100,000 population, but also a huge tourism draw. And it, they're also really outdoor paradises, right? We have skiing and boarding in the winter, snowshoeing we have floating kayaking all these great things hiking and so that type of person obviously someone who's who's really into exploring and appreciating the great outdoors is also naturally i think into really good food and really good beverages and something like beer where you can have an idea and then come out with a new beer within a matter of weeks is just something that people are into exploring everyone wants to hike new trails everyone wants to try new beers they just happen to go hand in hand
1: well that Mm -hmm. topic is something we definitely want to get into but first we want to talk about mirror pond so as many of our readers know, and as Aaron mentioned, you know Mirror Pond is a constant topic of a discussion in the news world about the pond itself, its contentious history, about whether the dam should be removed, whether we should dredge it, who's going to pay for that. But <laughs> readers, I want to assure you, this is not about, you know, it's not another Mirror tome politics, about right? Mirror Pond politics. Yes, this is a podcast about. The beer friends. So, uh, Mirror Pond is so iconic in Ben that it became the name of a very famous Deschutes Brewery beer. Um, in your story, did you talk about the origins of the name uh, when you were interviewing the Deschutes Brewery people?
2: I did. So, I was really lucky to get to speak with a lot of different people. But obviously, if you're only going to interview one person, I think that would have to be Gary Fish, who is the founder and remains the sole owner of Deschutes Brewery. Uh, Some people find that hard to believe because it has really grown into, uh, you know, I think at one point it had reached the 10th largest craft brewery in America. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's down to 11 or 12 at this point. Uh, But it really is independent. He started it here in Bend in 1988 and you could still find him drinking at the pub where it all began on Bond. And through a discussion with him, I mean, if you look at Maybe not the the newer brands that they're coming out with, but first of all, the name of the brewery itself. Maybe people outside of Oregon don't realize that the Chutes is the name of the river that runs through town. And a lot of, in fact, all of the early beer brands that they had, they were Cascade Golden Ale, named for the Cascade Mountains. Black Butte Porter, it remains the best-selling porter in America, named for Black Butte. Uh, bachelor bitter it's a beer that was one of their three core brands now you will only find it at the pub which to me is a shame because i still love esbs and, and bitters you know british uh leaning beers like that but so when mirror pond came out absolutely they were just looking at a map around bend and around central oregon and they thought well sure that's the name although <laughs> the part that was uh interesting was, Gary said, if we had really thought about it, we wouldn't have named it that because Mirror Pond Pale Ale. He kept stressing, it's five syllables. That's not something that you want to have to shout out when you're doing a a bar order. But I'll also tell you, I don't want to ruin too many secrets that will be revealed in the story. But that was not the original name of the beer. Oh. Well, well, don't say it because that, that'll okay. drive readership Go, right yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> to the website, <laughs> exactly. people. Exactly, you will find out what <laughs> they called it. Even though I don't know, again, not to reveal too much, but it wasn't the original concept for the name. Yeah. I don't. I do believe it, no one was able to order anything other than Mirror Pond Pale Ale. Yeah, and from the get-go, from the release, even though it was not one of those core three brands that they had intended to build shoots. Well, they were right known on. for their porter. right? Exactly. I mean,
0: that was their flagship. Absolutely.
2: Initially. Yeah. Uh, so they sort of, you know, he had this. Gary has this interesting story about fighting that marketing push because like as you know, yeah. it was famous and that's what they are still kind of famous for around the country. But from the day it was released, it was very clear that they had a, a, a hit with Mirapon Pale Ale.
0: I, I think it's it, it's interesting to me not to touch too much on the politics, Nicole. But uh, <laughs> you know that they that <laughs> they that they constantly. I mean, this shows how iconic that beer is. Is that people who are supporters of preserving the pond point to the fact that the beer is named <laughs> after the pond, and therefore we must continue to have it because one could not exist without the other.
2: I, <laughs> I, I think that that argument could be made. Right.
1: I mean, it's a chicken or the egg, though. Like, was Mirror Pond that popular before the beer came around? Ooh. You know, yeah, did people right. do people visit the Mirror Pond because they know the beer now? Is that why they care about it?
0: I got to say, I, at one point, I was walking through Drake Park, and someone was holding up the bottle yeah. and For sure. looking out and doing their little, like, is this, where is this, or, you know, this exact angle? And that someone was taking their picture. I had to laugh.
1: Well, you know that that's interesting because the perspective of the mirror pond that's on it is different over the labels. We've been looking at the labels in prep for the story, um, and where they shoot, you know, or where the image comes from. You think it's right there, kind of by the commons, but then in another version, it's in a different bridge. So it is all very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I I feel for those those folks who are trying to hold <laughs> their beer up to Mirror Pond. And, well,
0: and you know. also if you look at it, it's the the pond and the view have changed considerably from when that image was taken. It's 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 much more overgrown or grown up, and many more trees, and it's not as reflective. And
2: believe it or not, the beer itself has changed as well. The beer that you drink in two thousand twenty three, not that I. I mean, look, I I was not 21 in 1988, (laughs) but uh, the beer that you would have drank then just is not the same as it is now. It's very similar. You could see that it is the same DNA, just like you look at a a baby picture, you know, a toddler, you know, pictures of someone growing up. They obviously look different by the time they're grown. So that beer (laughs) is the same, but... It is also not the same. Okay, I got to hear like a little bit more about itself. that.
1: Like, what is different about it? Is it just, it just has a different taste? Like, over.
2: Well, so looking at that, you know, w- when they talk about it today, I think there are three primary characteristics of a pint of Mirror Pond Pale Ale. One is that sort of darker than average color, which is uh, largely uh, gleaned from the use of crystal malt as opposed to a paler malt or even a a Pilsner malt. If you look at a lot of pale ales that were created in this hyper-modern era, or certainly India pale ales, you'll see they're just lighter in color. They're more straw, golden, hay-colored. Because brewers have kind of shifted away from crystal malt, as the consumer has said, we're ready to shift away from that, towards more uh, hop-forward pale ales and India pale ales, and they just wanted the hop flavor to come through and less the malt flavor. Mm-hmm. So mm. Pond pale ale he- harkens back to an era where brewers were really striving for, for balance. You will hear that word mm-hmm. used in any discussion of Pond pale ale over and over again, balance. So there was a balance between the malts and the hops. Uh, today, we refer to it as exclusively a cascade hopped beer. That first batch did contain a, at least one other hop varietal that you really never see anymore. So just trying to keep up mm. with availability Supply of hop chains. varietals. And then if you think about the fact that hops are an agricultural product, as Gary Fish pointed out, a uh, 1988 cascade hop really probably doesn't contribute the same flavors and aromas that it does 35 years later, it has morphed mm-hmm. through sure. generations of breeding.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and then probably like terroir and all those things. Like, Absolutely. It's got to, I mean, if this company or this particular hop is being grown in different places, it's coming out differently. It's and- such
2: a, a special hop that to me is the bedrock for the Northwest hop crop. It was you know, initially brewers were always striving for what are referred to as noble hops. Hops that came out of uh, the Hallertau region in Germany. Uh, and, you know, the, so like Pilsner is classically permanently uh, tethered to a hop called Saz out of the Czech Republic. And it wasn't until the American microbrewing scene, right, the, you know, right. before what we call craft brewing scene today, um, it just happened to you know, if you think about Cascade Hops, I think most beer geeks know that it is the single hop used in Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Probably the only other pale ale that is as, if not more iconic than Deschutes Mirror Pond Pale Ale. And before that, technically, uh, Anchor Brewing Company, fame makers of, mm-hmm. of Anchor Seam, had a beer that they released in 1975 called mm-hmm. Liberty. It was released uh, to coincide with an anniversary of Paul Revere's ride. So 1975 is the first American cascade hopped beer. 1980 is when Sierra Nevada Pale Ale comes out. 1988 is when Mira Pond Pale Ale comes out. And because it was literally created by by botanists at OSU's uh, department, It, yeah, which was, it was and remains part of the USDA. Nowadays, you have all these really interesting private hop breeding companies up in Yakima, a little bit around the Willamette Valley, but it was initially all government sponsored and funded. (laughs) (laughs) So,
0: Taxpayer dollars it, at, at work. Pay, I mean, but what a what a <laughs>
2: gift, right? You know, roads, bridges, right. and, and cascade hops. Right. There you go. <laughs> and so, to me, it is the single most quintessential American hop, and therefore Pacific Northwest hop. And for the longest time, every hop varietal that came out after that was described as a super cascade. You have hops like Centennial, which are still mm-hmm. widely in use. And it wasn't really until kind of the, you know, the 10 years into our 21st century that they started looking at other hops, which is interesting because today's best-selling Deschutes beer, which is fresh-squeezed IPA, was built on Citra. And that is today remains the, the single most popular hop grown and featured in American craft beers.
1: And yet, okay, so you you kind of mentioned this in the story that Mirapond is the flagship. It's essentially like an extremely popular Deschutes brew. Why do you think it is? Is it the balance? That is it the fact that it has this one hop instead of the other hop?
2: I do. I think that it is so synonymous with everything that Deschutes Brewery has come to symbolize. And down to the name. I mean, it, it is inextricably linked, as we were discussing, to this place that, you know, maybe on a good day, if you're standing at the pub on Bond, you might be able to, I don't know, a rock, but certainly a Frisbee, certainly an a and have it make it to, to you know, the actual Mirror Pond. Whereas Black Butte, right? You have to get in your car and you drive, and Cinder Cone, and those other iconic beers of theirs. Um, even Bachelor for that matter. Red Chair. Red Chair, exactly. Mm. All these things that people who aren't from Ben might not realize it, but as soon as they get here, they understand why Mirror Pond is connected to it. And I think that that beer had such an impact on not only people who were discovering craft beer in the 80s, certainly into the 90s, because they didn't start bottling it until the early 1990s. That's another thing to keep in mind. If you were in Portland for the first few years of Mirror Pond's existence, and Blackbeat Porter for that matter, unless you found a, a keg of it, it wasn't until it started showing up in bottles. And that's one of the things uh, in this oral history that I got to talk to a great beer writer in Portland named Jeff Allworth. And, you know, he had, has great stories about his personal introduction and where it factors into the very modern Beer landscape, both how it is an outlier because we've moved on. I mean, we're in such an IPA centric market that by dint of not being an IPA, a lot of people might overlook that beer and the fact that it has crystal malts and Cascade hops. There's a lot of things that you could kind of say. Well, it's 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 out of its prime. At the same time, it remains one of the top selling beers from one of the top you know, breweries by volume in the country. So I think you could point to its continued relevance, even though some people may want to say, eh, not it's, it's less relevant. And really, I'm always amazed when I talk to younger drinkers. Some of them know it. Some of them have never heard of it.
0: You yeah, alone had it, you know, I mean. It's such a it's it's such the beer for people who moved here in their 90s, you know, the that early rec crowd. I mean, certainly I was one of those. And you just continue to have an affection for that beer because it was like you said, you you were special because you were drinking in the Deschutes Brewery Pub here, and people would come over and be like, ooh, uh, that were Right. It was your destination. You were going to go there. And when you got there, the only thing I can think of that, that people would be more covetous of was Jubal. You know, because sure. it'd be like, oh man, we're here during that special time. But you know, Mere Pond is just that got that kind of historical, you know, memory for for so many people.
2: I think there's really a lot of beers in Deschutes's, you know, pantheon in their though. pantheon. Yeah. Jubal, the Abyss, uh, the the Black Butte anniversary beers that mm-hmm. only come out one time yeah. a year. But I. I would argue that there's no wrong time for a Mirror Pond. I think it's a beer that, because of the malt backbone, works well in the winter, because it is a light 5% beer. It's down actually from when it debuted as a 5.5% beer. I think that it's very sessionable. That's a, another, you know, balance and sessionability. Right. Sessionable is just a, a beer industry term for you could drink a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> <Both> <laughs> I'm going to start saying that. When I'm like, yeah. Hey,
0: I brought the sessionable beer, so we'll
2: stay a while. We're going to have exactly. a sessionable <laughs> meeting today, everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that really can't be overvalued because a lot of the beers that the kids who are checking in every beer on untapped and they only want to have a beer one time and they don't even care about drinking 16 or 12 ounces of it they just want to say they had it oh, they can yeah. prove to themselves and all their friends on the social media app for beer enthusiasts I had that beer um, oh so
0: you're tapping I feel old now because you're tapping into something that I have no comprehension oh, oh there's, yeah. it's I would like buy a beer drink it is,
2: it's, it's like the Strava, the Strava for beer, beer lovers there you go Aaron That's I'm exactly speaking your language now I got right? it they <laughs> are <laughs> They are synonymous to their respective Or bird crowds. watchers. Make them even yeah, nerd yeah. It's <laughs> like <laughs> it's your bird, list. Yeah. <laughs> your bird yeah.
1: list. That's funny. So it is kind of like, that was one of my questions is like, do you think it's like the nostalgia? You know, what is it about this beer? It really does sound like a lot of it is nostalgia. And also differentiation from that it's not an IPA, which you kind of made it sound like that's that's sort of a th- reason not to drink it. But it also sounds like it's a reason to drink it because we have so many IPAs out there now.
2: Well, Gary Fish did say we would sell a lot more if we just called it an IPA. But I would argue you can't call it an IPA because it doesn't have virtually every hallmark of what an IPA has come to be. Except maybe if you wanted to call it a English or British style IPA, which in and of itself would doom the brand because... No one wants that. They want a West Coast IPA, a hazy IPA, a juicy IPA, an imperial IPA. The beers that are labeled as British IPAs, it sort of implies, I mean, that's really where the historical style came from. We're talking centuries ago. It wasn't what we know of as an India Pale Ale today. Yeah. Well, Uh, funny,
0: funny story that about, um, I was in New Zealand and, uh, at a restaurant and they gave me a menu and they had APA. There was IPA and they had (laughs) APA and under APA was Pond, and they had several other beers there, but you know, they had a collection of like three American beers and, uh, but Mirapon was one. it was I never heard the term before. I mean, and that could be my beer ignorance, but well, but the IPAs were all British. They were all that that kind of bitter, you know, more of what you would think is a traditional i p a
2: and you said this was in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. so here's the really interesting thing about that the American craft brewing industry in this moment in time is absolutely enamored of southern hemisphere hops, <laughs> largely coming from New Zealand, oh, okay. Uh, Obviously, certainly a little bit from Australia. And they grow them in Patagonia even, but we don't get those here in the States. So when you say APA, I think historically, and by that I mean the last 30 years, uh, APA really has meant American pale ale. Mm -hmm. But more and more, you will see beers that are describing themselves as an Australian pale ale because oh, they're relying okay. on Southern Hemisphere hops, and they oh, okay. figured APA for Australia is just I don't know easier than NZPA. <laughs> but a, really, a lot of the, the new oh, okay. sexy hop varietals definitely are from New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, and that is one of the things that is again I I don't I, I don't want to sound disparaging of Cascade hops. I still really love them, but they are very much tethered to. Early yeah. micro brews,
0: yeah, but in that, but that could come around, right? I mean, that's a you know, as as tastes change or evolve, or it may you know, nostalgia is going to kick in, and at some point, it's like, oh well, you're drinking, kind of, you're drinking more of a citrusy thing. That's kind of fake now, you know, and we want to go back to the authentic original Cascade. Or it'll
2: it- be fascinating to see where Mirror Pond Pale Ale's sales are in I don't know twenty years from now. Yeah, uh, I I personally don't see a world where it doesn't exist, Right, but let's not forget that for a while, right, Deschutes had a beer called um, Inversion mm-hmm. IPA that came out before Fresh Squeezed, and it was still a bigger, bolder mirror pond. It had Cascade and Centennial. It was mm-hmm. going for that sort of West Coast yeah. ultra bitter, ultra pith. Uh, flavored pine, flavored hop character, until Citra and Mosaic and a lot of the, you know, mm-hmm. newer avant-garde hops took over, and they started moving away from crystal malt and moving exclusively towards lighter, paler uh, malts like Pilsner malt, uh, and so I, you know, you could say it is its ongoing popularity because of nostalgia. And I think in large part it is. I don't think that if they were to introduce it today, if Mirror Pond came out for the first time, I don't think it would work. But because it is a juggernaut of the craft industry right. on the whole, I mean, as I was working on this story, right, I was drinking a lot more of it than even <laughs> I usually do, and I have re-fallen in love with it. So even though I do appreciate it, all the new juicier, hop-forward beers. There's absolutely still a place for a beer that is, again, balanced, sessionable, sessionable. easy, I was easy waiting. drinking. Yeah, and yeah.
1: but... I mean, in regards to you know the advent of new hop varieties that might you know blow the top off the craft beer industry. You know, I have no doubt considering our government-funded research institution in Corvallis's, you know, contributions to beer and marijuana, mm-hmm. like that they are going to, you know, that eventually things will, things will come forward, right? Well, I
2: can't wait. I, I've had a few of these. This is really veering off topic, but <clears> since <throat> you brought it up, uh, about, I don't know, less than 10 years ago, we'll, we'll say five or six years ago, there were breweries that were using CBD in beers, that were using... Uh, cannabis-derived terpenes in their beer. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because marijuana and hops are botanical cousins. Yep. So, you know, if you think about some of the IPAs that people refer to as dank, that is the reason. Yeah, They're not putting skunk oil in there. They're putting hops in that share that quality with super dank, sticky icky. Yeah, and I mean, (laughs) I guess that
1: the legalization has gotten our language around terpenes a lot more. You know, it's elevated our knowledge of this stuff. So now we have, like, language to talk about it that a lot of us didn't know before.
2: So as a result, the FDA kind of cracked down and said, "Uh uh-uh, you can't blur these two. But I think that will be undone. I think that we'll have uh, a near future in which you could reintroduce cannabis-derived terpenes. And the IPAs that I had with that just glorious. I mean, just <laughs> they just taste so good. Yeah, yeah. So I can't wait. And and we're seeing, by the way, we're seeing a lot of other treatments to hops. Just like uh, cannabis producers are coming up with all sorts of uh, why am I? You know, ex- they're they're finding new ways to extract it and to synthesize and and all these things they're doing it with hops. Too, you're seeing yeah. cryogenically frozen hops and all these huh. uh, different products. In fact, they're often referred to as hop hash. So <laughs> there's blur- blurring
1: <laughs> the line even more. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about one of your favorite topics, Brian, which is um, you know we're talking about this new brew, that new brew. Um, you know, and you've written about this a couple times about this notion of brewers constantly having to reinvent the making of hops and fermented grain. It's basically the same recipe, right? Right. Um, what does the fact that Pond remains so popular bring into that conversation? Is sticking with the old favorites a good business strategy?
2: I think it is. I think that ultimately the entire reason for the craft beer segment's birth and rise is people rightly got tired of one flavor. Imagine if... Everything you loved. Imagine if every pizza was a pepperoni Budweiser. pizza. A Budweiser right. and pizza. So therefore, exactly, <laughs> if every beer was a Budweiser. And you could look back to the not distant past. We're talking the 70s mm-hmm. into the early 80s where we had very, very few breweries. In fact, there were fewer breweries on a national scale at that time than any single large city has today. We were down to wow. about 54 across the country. So Mm. now you have cities again, San Diego,
1: uh
2: you know, New York, even Chicago, lots of Boston, all these cities have more than fifty-four breweries now. We have just about ten thousand on a national level. That includes everything from the really big ones, your Sam Adams, your Deschutes, Sierra Nevadas, and of course Budweiser Miller ones like that, down to the teensiest, tiniest pubs or nano breweries. But there's ten thousand. And the reason is People want diverse flavors. They don't want to have to drink the same thing over and again or eat the same thing. You don't hike the same trail. You don't ski the same run. You don't drink the same beer. Now, that said, there are plenty of people who have this notion of brand loyalty. That's something that used to really exist very strongly. Back in the days, you were a Bud man. You were a Coors Light. Gal, you were a Michelob Boltra. Exactly. <laughs> you know.
1: Sorry, we're we're schlitz and hams people in my in my country. There you go. But I
2: mean you still see PBR and you still see, yeah. you know, those beers, but by and large, people are looking for new flavors, new styles, and and kind of going back to that untapped notion. I, I personally think people have gone too far with it. Guess what? If you gave a beer a perfect rating, maybe have it a second time if you loved it. Right. You know? I mean, come on. Don't say, ah, been there, drank that, moving on, can never <laughs> have it again. I can't even believe that's there a are, thing. There are it kids, cracks me
1: up. I love grilled like cheese. That. I'm gonna. Ha- I'm never going to have it again. Exactly. Yeah. I don't have time. I've got to have another great cheese.
2: But that is <laughs> why we have so many breweries, and we and each one, you know, uh, it was around the year—so, so, Breakside Brewing in Portland, they opened up in 2010. And I think by around 2013, maybe 14, they did something that was newsworthy. They made 100 different beers that calendar year. Wow! Nowadays, that's almost commonplace. Really? Everyone's always doing these one-off beers because, oh, it's hype and it's this. Yeah. And it could even be the same hops, but they're... You know, it could be citra mosaic hopped or it could be mosaic and citra hopped. It's actually not that diverse, <laughs> but they're always doing it to try to capture someone who's looking for the new new. Right. And I think you could only do that for a very finite amount of time before you burn out on a personal level and you say, you know what? I'm going to buy a six pack. <laughs> and what am I going to buy it of? I want that first beer that I fell in love with. And right. so that is where Mira Pond captures a lot of consumers And I also think we saw that writ large only at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. I think there was, it happened to have been a great time for flagship beers where people said, ooh, not allowed out of the house for, what do they say, two weeks? I'm going to go get a 24-pack of beer. (laughs) And there aren't a whole bunch of beers that are sold in a 24-pack, so or, you know, two 12-packs. And they were going back to, again, the, the Sierra Nevada Pale Ales and the New Belgium Fat Tire and Mm-hmm. shoots Mirror Pond, and maybe yeah. Bee Porter oh. as well. Um, comfort, so I, comfort, comfort beers. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And I yeah. think no matter where you are, there will always be a time where you want to go back to, to that. Yeah. And so that beer, that's why it'll always be around, because there will always be a demand. And it's still one of their top-selling beers. Yeah. It's not number one or two. Uh I wasn't it's getting incredible. specific answers, but yeah. three to five easily. Yeah.
1: Going back just quickly to your the number of breweries in the country, because you do what you do, I wonder if you know, I mean, are people drinking more or is it just that they're just drinking more of a variety? Like, are we just more more boozy than we were in the 70s also?
2: <laughs> well, we're probably boozier on the whole, but we happen to be in what I think the industry would refer to as a downturn. Um you know, I, I could imagine that within a few years, we may be down to 9000 breweries, mm. which truly would not be horrible. That's still a lot. Right. Um, and I think that uh, here's one example, as Gary Fish had mentioned during my interview with him, they're actually actively trying to reduce their skews. They're trying to reduce the number of offerings because they don't want to thin the herd too much. So really, focusing on core brands, better selling brands. Um, personally, like one way that that played out is with their very popular Pilsner King Crispy. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another. So not only is that sessionable, Aaron, but it's also oh, I'm a fan
0: of King Crispy. It's yeah. it's a people refer yep.
2: to it as a crispy great summer beer. Exactly, yep. great summer beer. But I really liked when they were experimenting, and they did, as you had mentioned at the top. I really love rice lagers. So mm-hmm. they had Kanpai Crispy, like a Japanese <laughs> lager. They had Contessa Crispy, which is... Deschutes uh, had these. Absolutely. Yeah, miss this. It was a new yeah. uh, direction for Pilsners. It was referred to as a, an Italian Pilsner because there was a brewery in Italy that did something that was previously unthinkable. They dry hopped a Pilsner. The Germans would never do that. The Czechs would <laughs> never do that. So even American brewers, even though we are really into innovation... It just wasn't really seen. They didn't think to apply that technique to a Pilser, even though it was already de rigueur for IPAs. You can't have an IPA in this day and age that isn't dry hopped, which just means hops added l- basically at the end of the boil. You know, it's a one it's a to two fermented. hour process. They're not in the fermentation exactly. process, right? Yeah. The earlier in the beer making process that you add hops that will contribute bitterness, and the later it will lead to more flavor and aroma. Hmm. So it's just one of those things where American consumers have said, you know what I really want? More hops. Even in a, uh, in a traditionally not hop-forward beer style like Pilsner. Um, and so— Yeah, but you just see all those pressures now f- uh, from ciders,
0: seltzers— marijuana could be thrown in there you know there's just you know when you go up to a food cart lot now and you look at the offerings you know of the 25 taps (laughs) you know a good 10 of them are now other things CBD drinks you know stuff like that I was asking young people around the office like because you know I'm old school. I'm going to come up. My choices are going to be between the IPA and the Pilsner. That's that's the range. Whereas, you know, a lot of the younger folk in the office, they're, oh, yeah, they're hitting them all. They're, it depends on the night. It might be a cider night. It might be a CBD night. might be a beer night. You know, but you can see the diversity there.
2: Well, it's funny. I, I consider myself a hophead. I really love hop-forward IPAs. But knowing that I am voting every time I order one, with my call, with my money. I don't want to live in a world where there are only IPAs, just like I wouldn't have wanted to live in that world where every beer tasted like Bud Light, you know, which did 40, 50 years ago. Not that Bud Light existed 50 years ago. But uh, I don't want that homogenization to creep into the modern craft beer segment. So I rarely order IPAs because I think that brewer, whoever he or she is, <laughs> needs to know that not all consumers only want that, even though statistically 45% of the entire craft beer market are hop-forward beers. Mm. So that's everything from your pale ales and your dry hop this and that to your double and triple IPAs.
1: I mean, I, I last night I happened to have a Freem Pilsner and Beautiful. that, it's of course, their beers are delicious, but a lot of hop in that beer. Yes. And you would not, ex- you know, buying a Pilsner, not knowing, I wouldn't have expected that.
2: They probably like to market it as, you know, an authentic continental lager, but it's definitely brewed with the Northwest beer drinker yes, in mind. absolutely. Undoubtedly. Yeah.
0: That's why it's so good. That is why it's so <laughs> good, right? It's okay but, to say, <laughs> you know,
2: think about everything. America didn't invent a whole lot, but we... Awesomeed everything <laughs> and we did it by kicking everything up just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And so just like we turn our amps to 11 we turn our beers to 11 with more hops.
1: Yeah, well speaking of the awesome um, what is something you'd like to see happen on the Ben beer scene or maybe even the Oregon beer scene you know, knowing that we're you know, we have a high per capita you know, what, what, what would you yeah, what do you dream about in beer world?
2: You know we're we're definitely seeing in this very very contemporary moment a resurgence in higher alcohol beers. Um, you know, IPAs when they came out, they were in the five percent range, six percent range, and now <coughs> now it's standard that they're seven, sometimes eight. And you see these double the doubles IPAs and the triples, and it's not impossible to find something calling itself IPA that is approaching or if not over 10%. Yeah. You got to watch
1: yourself on some of these.
2: Absolutely you do. So, I would love to see brewers realize that hey, guess what? Not only is it okay to put less alcohol in there, but you might sell more of it because sessionability. Right. <laughs> I'm going to drink 2 pints of right. a five percent beer, but only one of an eight and a half percent beer, or even if you're someone who routinely is able to consume four pints, imagine if you could have six <laughs> or something that was a little bit lower. And by the way, that really is where that term "session ability" came from was all these British Sessions. pub goers yeah. because their IPAs were actually three and four percent. Yeah,
1: I mean, going back to talking about Mirror Pound again, it's like that's five percent. Maybe that's another point in its in its. Uh, on its side, right? It's easier, Absolutely. easier drinking.
2: <clears throat> what's What's funny is, going back, I don't know, a dozen years, you started to see uh, a beer style emerge called ISA India Session Ale, or maybe people called it a Session IPA. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people said, certainly brewers said, "That's dumb. It's called a pale ale, like a lower <laughs> alcohol IPA." Is a PA is a pale mm-hmm, ale. Right. And then, you know, you could debate anything in the world, rightly or wrongly. But I think that—and by the way, I think a lot of people would say, well, maybe the defining differentiation between a, an APA and a Session IPA is that caramel malt. Mm. Uh, you know, the crystal malt that that mm. gets featured in just a slightly darker color and a little more malt character and flavor to it. Um, but I really— Enjoyed those, and I think brewers will probably tell you, and maybe it's a consumer of a certain age, meaning over 40, maybe over 50. I don't know exactly where where they delineate. Um, but I I think that lower alcohol beers could still be very full flavored, especially in the sour category. You still see a lot of lower alcohol session, uh, 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 sour ales, but I think it can. Exist more, even in certainly in the the crispy world of lagers, you know, light beers, Kolsch, helles, things like that, mm. um, but also even among hop forward beers. So I would like to see that. At the same time, you ask, would I would like to see one of the things that I love about the Bend brewing scene, and it definitely plays out around the state, and to a lesser degree around the country. Um, and I say this as someone who just got back from an East Coast trip, and it was fascinating to really see again, even though I, I love traveling around uh, the country and have uh, been to breweries all over, um, we we have it we still have it really good. We yeah. still have it better than <laughs> yes. nearly every other state. I, yeah, I think you could easily make the argument that Oregon is the best state for craft beer. And even if you can't say the best, no one could argue it doesn't deserve its place in that, that echelon. And it's oh, we because can. we can say yeah. it's the best. They're, <laughs> first of all, they're everywhere. I'm back east. Uh, really? You're going to make me go 15 minutes to the nearest brewery? Can yeah. You imagine that. I here? can't be bothered. <laughs> <Right>. No. <laughs> but also, I look at breweries such as uh, Monkless, they do all Belgian style ales. Porter Brewing, all British cask ales, even the brand new Van Hennion, all Continental Lagers. Yes, of course, they have an IPA because Oregon. right? But I think, uh, and and I also really love Funky Fauna out in Sisters. They're doing all Saison's and sort of, you know, lighter farmhouse uh, Belgian French style beers. I love when a brewery says, hey, we're going to carve out our niche in exactly the same way that Deschutes did with Black Butte Porter. That beer was designed to carve out a niche in the beer world. You know, uh, as the story went, their distributor at that time said, you could put out Mirror Pond or maybe Bachelor Bitter and get a small part of the light beer market. Or you could put out something called a porter and dominate the dark beer market, and in doing so, they created, they helped create that dark beer mm. market. Um, so I think that there are still very many new directions that are not actually being served, at least on a large scale, for Central Oregon.
1: There you go. We got so we we need a little like bit of specialization and maybe some lighter beers. I'm going to throw
2: in Ale Apothecary into there, the only all-sour, like, all-wild brewery that we've got. So there's five breweries that have a very special direction, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Yeah, super cool. Brian Yeager, it has been such a pleasure to have you. Your wealth of knowledge, and I can't uh, wait to get that story out on stands and have everybody learn so much more about me. Thank Pond. you. I
2: will say, I know this sounds like shilling, but I really hope that when you're drinking it that you do it over a, a pint or at least a can of... Mirror Pond, especially oh. if it's been a long time because it it's part and parcel of, of what Bend is in my opinion. I think yeah. there's only a few beers that you could say are bend flavored yeah and i think that's one of them okay i'm going
1: to take your advice after i edit the piece when sure. i read it again it's probably I'll, better I'll if read... it's
0: before
2: the shoot aaron it'll be, aaron, boring, it'll, be yeah. it'll be like
1: 9 a.m on a monday okay <laughs> if you
2: drink a few of them you'll be like this is the best thing he's ever written
1: <laughs> leave shoot. it leave all, I didn't all that even stuff because it, it's
2: all quotes <laughs> it's an oral history oh man okay
1: well we'll see about that
2: brian thanks for coming in thank you guys
0: You've been listening to the Ben Don't Break podcast powered by The Source Weekly. To read, hear, and see more of what we do, go to bensource.com.